Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. There is no scenario where one of us is successful without really understanding and empathizing with the other person's role. And I feel like as engineering leaders, if you're blind to challenges that the engineering team has, you're going to fail. And as a principal engineer, staff engineer, if you do not understand the challenges of managing people, you will fail. But if you can figure that out, this is like a pretty strong symbiotic relationship. And I think that's what I enjoy a lot about working with Tom. I was thinking a few weeks ago about how to compare Viraj and I, and if you go skiing with me, you're, you're not going to have a lot of fun, but you're not going to get hurt. If you go skiing with Viraj, you will not be bored. You are going to be doing slopes you are not comfortable with, and it's going to be an intense, memorable day. I love working with Viraj because he is a great counterbalance to my caution. It's more fun with Viraj. Hello and welcome to the Engineering Leadership Podcast, brought to you by ELC, the engineering leadership community. I'm Jerry Lee, founder of ELC. And I'm Patrick Gallagher, and we're your hosts. Our show shares the most critical perspectives, habits, and examples of great software engineering leaders to help evolve leadership in the tech industry. Human beings are really bad at predicting the future. Most of us have absolutely no idea how our relationships today might create new career opportunities in the future or how the leadership lessons we're learning right now might impact the future decisions we make. Tom and Viraj met 15 years ago at Microsoft. Both of their careers since have followed unconventional paths in engineering and leadership. Tom, having followed the path of starting several startups as CTO to then become a principal engineer at Dropbox. And Viraj, having followed the path first as a startup founding engineer to then pursue engineering leadership and build engineering organizations at Dropbox, Convoy, then later becoming technical advisor and chief of staff to the CEO. Now, after 15 years on both shared and divergent career paths, at both established companies and startups, they're taking everything they've learned about engineering and building engineering organizations from their parallel career paths and are co-founding a company together. And that's what makes this episode of the podcast special. Because through the story of their parallel career paths in engineering and leadership, and through their 15-year relationship, we have the opportunity to see the long-term impact of our own relationships and how our own lessons and experiences now may determine our future paths. If you're someone looking to better understand what career path to take in engineering or leadership, or you want to know the thought process and strategy behind building a new engineering organization and culture, part two of our conversation with Tom and Viraj has you covered. You'll hear more about the experiences and decisions they made to pursue their different career paths, more of their lessons and strong opinions on building engineering organizations, execution, and culture, Tom shares his framework to assess different startup opportunities before you get involved and what they admire most about working with each other. Enjoy part two of our conversation with Tom Kleinpeter and Viraj Modi. Tom, I think to focus on you, your career path is really interesting because you've both phased in and out of engineering leadership as well as being a principal IC. I was wondering if we could dive a little bit more into your career path. 
Can you share a little bit more about what that journey was like transitioning into engineering leadership, transitioning away, and getting deeper in the world of being a principal IC? Let's see where to start. So yeah, I did six years at startups, two years at Microsoft, then I did another startup with Barrage. And most of the time I was doing that, I was an IC. I mean, you know, I would occasionally have an intern or somebody to have to manage. I was typically in the, the tech lead role if we had multiple engineers working on something. So I went to Dropbox in 2012. We, we moved down to San Francisco from Seattle. And I worked on the photos team for a while. Uh, I was a part of shipping Carousel, which was Dropbox's big effort to get into photos. Then you know, the photos team was growing pretty rapidly and we needed a manager for the photo infrastructure team. And I said, sure, I'll, I'll do that. Like, this will be interesting. I have, haven't managed a big team before. And before I knew it, I was had like 15 people on my team. <laughs> so it was, it was a pretty rapid introduction into the, the world of management. And it was completely fascinating. I typically had spent most of my career extremely focused on what I was doing, like the code that I was writing, how much I was getting done. But I really hadn't looked around too much to how other people perform, what varying levels of output were. And so when I became a manager and started paying a lot more attention to how a team works, you know, how different people are good at different things, people are clearly motivated by different things. It was really educational in terms of just helping me understand like how you get more out of a team and how you make people happier. People respond to very different styles of management. And that, that was, you know, sort of opaque to me before I was actually a manager. But after doing that for a while, Dropbox opened a Seattle office. And so I had the opportunity to move back up. And this was about the same time Dropbox was investing less in photos. So I just decided to switch back to being a, a staff engineer. I, I probably could have stuck with management if I'd wanted to, but I had sort of looked around. And I, I at this point, I had met other senior engineers and I had met executives and I just felt like I had more in common with the staff engineer types. You know, I, I just, I felt a lot more resonance and more in common with, you know, the, the technology and, and making those choices. Uh, it just seemed like I was better at it too. You know, had a lot more ideas about, you know, how to make things faster and, you know, write, write stuff better than I did about, you know, growing a, an organization, things like that. So I was very happy for my time as a manager at Dropbox because it just gave me this great perspective that I think has made me a better engineer in multiple ways. But it was also fun to get back into the code. And one thing I found as a manager is you don't get to finish as many things as when you're an engineer. And for me, that that's a big part of my job satisfaction is, you know, landing the diff, turning it on, seeing the graph go up and to the right. And, you know, a lot of times you might finish a one-on-one, -on -one, but you're probably not going to solve all the person's problems, you know, in half an hour a week. So... That's definitely one of the challenge for managing people. You don't see the, the result right away, even sometime years after. Now, it is very satisfying when you do get results. Like when you, you know, get someone promoted <laughs> after a long time, it's, I think the payoff is greater, but it's definitely less frequent. Yep. After that, I spent a little time working on a performance team in Seattle when I got the opportunity to be the... I don't know if we had a real name for it back then, but you might call it the Uber tech lead or the tech lead for this big project in Dropbox for business, where I won't get into the, the boring details of it too much, but we had to, to make some really invasive changes to how ACLs worked Dropbox for the, the, the business product. And it was a pretty scary project because it was, you know, at the heart of Dropbox's business is keeping their customers' data safe. Like that is absolutely important. And that means keeping it secure, keeping it uncorrupted. And Dropbox does super well at that. But th th there was a lot of risk associated with that, with this project. 
and it was also just very open-ended. It wasn't exactly clear how it should work. And it was sort of exactly the kind of ambiguous problem that, that spanned you know, lots of different bits of code at the company, because this really touched every single product from the clients to the mobile apps, to the web, to the, the core file system stuff. So they felt that I would be a great person to tackle that because I had a lot of breadth at that point at Dropbox. I had worked all over the place. I, I knew people all over the company. So I, I took that on and that took about a year and a half to two years. We had teams in a couple different offices working on it, but eventually we got that done. And that was when I got promoted to principal after we shipped that safely. Such a great story because I'm just thinking now at this point in time, I'm a visual person. So I'm thinking about in this story, we have you moving down this path, experimenting and learning a lot about what you like, what you don't like and shaping your career around really interesting different opportunities. And then in parallel, we have Raj. What were you doing this whole time? Because you went further down the engineering leadership path. Can you give us more of the how and why in your transition in that pathway? Yeah, I started at Dropbox just as any other engineer, just working on a bunch of stuff. This is a weird story, by the way, connecting the dots between the Audio Galaxy piece and the Dropbox piece. Two things happened in that first week that I'll never forget. One is whenever Dropbox was deployed back then, this was still the early days, the site used to go down for a bit. and I found it really comical because Audio Galaxy obviously wasn't nearly the same scale as Dropbox, but we had solved a lot of the problems that Dropbox was running into with their deployments. And I was like, yo, we can't figure this out. What's going on? But obviously they figured it out and it's like bigger than anything Audio Galaxy ever was. The more interesting story though was we were talking to some of the, our new teammates and just like getting acquainted. Everybody was super nice. And we were telling the story of Audio Galaxy. We described everything, you know, everything that Tom said we had built. We built this and that, and we demoed the product and we showed them everything. And then one of the engineers or like one of the managers is like, so where's the rest of your team? And I was like, yeah, you know, you built all this shit. It can't be just the two of you. No, it was just the two of us. And like literally nobody believed us. Again, goes to show, you know, when you're big company minds, not big company, Dropbox wasn't a big company, but like just like working in teams of two or three, having autonomy and independence, just results in a very different velocity than um, even 10 people working together. Anyway, so we joined Dropbox. I was just another engineer. It was also when Dropbox does this amazing hack week thing. So I had a pretty incredible project. My first hack week, won some award and everything. So I was really enjoying myself as an engineer. But then Dropbox was growing really quickly. They needed people to start doing manager stuff. For whatever reason, they tabbed me as potentially being good at that. And I generally had seen enough bad managers, especially at Microsoft, where my whole MO was, look, all I'm going to do is not be a bad manager. And that's probably good enough. If I can be good or not is secondary. Being like a legit engineer makes it easy in some sense, where at least you can have straight conversations with engineers without any concerns. So it was pretty accidental. It was also like that one year was extremely uncomfortable. The transition from IC to manager is super hard. You need to be able to flex all these muscles that you either didn't know you had or you have but have not developed nearly as much. That dopamine hit thing that Tom mentioned around how you get gratification is completely different. So for me, it was pretty hard. But what kept me going was really understanding the concept of leverage. And I think this is applied to a lot of how I think about prioritization and how we build things even at Common Room. There are high leverage and low leverage activities. A good manager is a force multiplier when it comes to leverage, right? If you have a team of six productive, happy engineers, they're producing six times the code that you could produce single-handedly, right? 
And it's also on the flip side, a really strong negative multiplier if you do it wrong, where, you know, a team of six unhappy engineers can cause way more damage than one unhappy engineer. And so if you start applying this thought and use that to understand and shape your head around how you have impact and what the result of your hard work is, then it starts to make more sense. Maybe this is, you know, bullshit manager textbook rationalization of how to get satisfaction from your job. But it's really the only explanation I have for why I was okay making that transition. Because, I mean, I was still, and even now, I think I'm like a pretty decent engineer. I can still write code. But I understand that if I can then instead go hire 10 people who can write code equal to or better than me, no engineering feat I can perform is going to have that level of impact, right? And then you recursively apply this to larger organizations, bigger teams, products, etc. So that's probably the way to bifurcate. And, you know, there's many people who've tried it and realized, hey, look, I don't actually enjoy it. No harm going back to being an engineer. You're still going to be a damn good engineer. Or there's some people who are like, hey, look, I'm a good manager and I seem to be doing well, but I just, you know, don't like doing it. I don't get gratification from it. That's okay. You can go back to being an IC. But that was kind of the fork in the road for me. And then the fortunate thing was Dropbox kept growing. More things needed to get done. You know, orgs grow. They find people who can sort of scale with the organization. That was kind of the second part of what a journey that started at Audio Galaxy that sort of culminated at Dropbox, Convoy, and then ultimately as Dan's chief of staff was just this ability to be a breadth person instead of needing to be a depth person. It was just easy for me to have a conversation with salespeople and with marketing and with engineers and with PMs and with recruiting all in the same breath. That's where it was really nice to make this transition to, as a foreground thing saying, hey, look, I could choose to be a really good engineer in one dimension or I'm just going to become like a really well-rounded generalist on the leadership track. Viraj, I remember when we first connected, you were nominated for the Engineering Leadership Award. One thing that stood out to me is the authenticity and candor that connected really well with your team. How do you leverage that? And what kind of suggestion do we have for other engineering leaders going through that kind of transitions? I used to not be like that. There used to be a time when I used to think really hard about what I said, to whom, in what context, in what way. And I basically reached the realization, I don't remember exactly how, I think somebody helped me. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how this happened. But somehow I reached the realization that the only person suffering from doing all of that is me. I have all this cognitive overload of, hey, when I say this to a PM, I need to say it this way. But when I say the same thing to an engineer, I need to say it another way. And then I said this story to this one person in a slightly different way. It was just so much overhead for myself. Where, look, I got better things to do with my life than worry about all this extra cognitive overload. And generally my approach has been be candid, just be straight and be okay having hard conversations. And then invariably you'll find situations where you did something incorrectly or you made a mistake, own up to it and say sorry. It's actually not too hard when you think about it. It's like, yes, yeah, say what's in your mind, say it nicely and own up to your mistakes when you make them and don't shy away from hard conversations. If you can do that, your life is a little easier. I can't believe or imagine that they can simplify a lot of things. Yeah, simplification is a big theme in just how I think of management where you can do processes and systems and all sorts of tooling to make things complicated. 
to what end? You know, if you cannot explain why this is useful, get rid of it. It's the same thing with just personal interactions, right? Where if you cannot explain why a one-on-one is useful, don't have it. But if you're going to have it, might as well make it high quality instead of checking a box. I've seen conversations that went on for a long time. In the end, it actually, it's just why you're doing that to me kind of thing. What's your intention behind that? So if you are open about it, just ask about that directly, then it can be a really quick conversation. Yeah, it's something that I try to bring to a common room. And it takes a while getting used to both ways. You know, if an engineer has never had a manager who's direct with them, or if, you know, a product manager has never worked with a counterpart on engineering who's just like straight and transparent about everything, it's a little jarring. It's like, what do you mean this is not good? (laughs) Well, I mean, it's not good. Uh, This, you know, it's pretty unambiguous there. This is not like, what are you actually trying to say? Well, I'm actually trying to say what I'm saying. Once you cross that chasm, it's just so nice because it's easy, right? If I have something to say to Patrick, he never has to second guess what I'm saying. Again, where this gets tough is when you're a jerk about it. And hopefully I don't do that, but it is a foreground thing where I try and make sure that the words I use are appropriate. But I'm not going to not say something just because I'm afraid to say it or because I feel like someone will be sad if they hear it. Yes, if you're sad, I will console you and I will help you get past your sadness. But, you know, you got to lay it out there. The same thing with the recruiting approach previously, right? We spoke a little bit about recruiting earlier. It's like, yeah, what's the point in, you know, convincing you to make a decision that may not be the right decision for you? And speaking of culture, now which is a transition to your new company, on a higher level, what kind of conscious effort both you and Tom put together to shape the culture of a new company, especially around engineering and product? I think how you build a company and how you build a product is very analogous. You know, you have a bunch of problems that you got to solve. In one place, you write code. In another place, you go hire people, build processes, build systems. So a lot of what we do, our company values distill a lot of our worldview. And we're kind of fortunate in a pretty unique way in that we have co-founders who really complement our strengths. So we haven't spoken about them yet, but Linda and Francis are our co-founders. Linda has a business, marketing, venture capital background. Francis is a designer, product designer through and through. You know, Tom and I, you know now. And so as a unit, we have a pretty unique set of strengths that complement each other and cover each other's blind spots. It's not so hard to find, you know, two technical co-founders who are looking for business persons to help or, you know, non-technical people who like need engineers to come join the team. It It's really nice to have a well-rounded group as founders, which has helped us distill our values and things around simplification or putting customers first or making sure that it's all about the team and not any individual. But then also having like high standards for what we think craftsmanship should be at a company. We have a pretty opinionated set of values that we've distilled from the derived experiences that we all have. And then engineering has sort of its own set of principles. A lot of what we learned during our experiences at Audio Galaxy and Dropbox, right? Where velocity matters, where customer trust matters, where do we take shortcuts versus not? That's a lot of the culture. And then one other thing that's pretty obvious when I say it, but not enough companies, I think, practice it is building the muscle to recover quickly. You know, there are companies whose entire approach is let's not make mistakes. There are parts of the product where that is absolutely imperative around customer trust. But then there are parts of the product where, look, you know what, no matter how hard you try, there will be mistakes or you'll solve a problem differently than it should have been. Build the muscle to go react and recover very quickly. 
and then everything kind of falls into place. So that's another thing we've been trying to practice. One thing that's really important to me is that we let the engineers build things and, and make those mistakes, like Faraj said. I guess backing up a step, Faraj and I are, are very conscious of the fact that we're building a company in a different way than we did at Audio Galaxy V2. That was one thing, and this is a completely different thing. And the fact that they're both called startups is like a, a problem with that word. <laughs> so we are planning to build a legit company here. We're, we're going to be a big engineering team in a year. Hopefully we're going to be an even bigger engineering team in two years. We need to have a foundation of people that can build that org on. And that doesn't happen if I'm running around specking everything out and then people are just writing it in code. It happens if we have a deep bench of people that have deep understanding of what something is and they feel a lot of ownership over it because they designed it and they built it and it's their thing. So just ownership and letting people really grow and build stuff on their own is, is, is really important to me as part of the culture we want to build here. I think the complementary aspect to what you asked, Jerry, you asked about sort of the values and foundation of what we're building. The complementary aspect of that is how we execute. And this is one where it has to change with every evolution of the company. There's no one formula that works for a 5% company that then also works for a 20% company and a 50% company and so on. But making sure that what you're optimizing for is preserved as you evolve your process. And it comes back to the values and the principles, right? When you're a 50% team, how do you optimize for velocity still? You know, if you're doubling year over year and bringing in all these new people, how do you still build fast while onboarding people and making sure they get productive. These are not easy problems to solve. And again, this is where some of what we've learned over the last few years will help us prevent sort of the rookie mistakes. But like, this is where innovation needs to happen in some sense on the organizational side of things or on the process side of things or execution side of things, right? How do you set the right organizational structures? How do you minimize processes while still ensuring that things that are sacred do not get violated? How do you provide autonomy and independence and the accountability that comes with that? A lot of people will talk about providing autonomy and independence, but then fail to hold people accountable. It's like, no, you can't have your cake and eat it too. Those are hard things you have to deal with. We'll deal with them. I wanted to dive in deeper to what you both are bringing up because I feel like this early conversation of defining the type of organization you want to build and how you want to go about building it and creating culture, creating processes that really reflect the type of environment that you want to create in the business that you want to build the intentionality that you both have shared of we want to build this the way that we want to build it in a way that we think is going to create the best outcome and the best experience. It reminds me of, of some of the lessons that Max Lovkin shared with us. Uh, he's co-founder of PayPal, CEO and founder of a firm shared about like the intentionality of having the conversation to define values early on. I would love to know from your perspectives, what was the experience like to have those early company building conversations? Was it like a formal we're going to have this conversation and talk about culture. We're going to talk about the engineering org and the vision for that. Give us the environment and the story for how you had these conversations and at what point did you introduce them into the business building experience? Well, I think the thing that made it harder for Common Room was we were we are a pandemic company. So we were trying to have all these conversations without being in the same room with all the co-founders. Although we did, I feel like there were a couple times when we spent time socially distant outside that were the beginning of some of this, but this is another making a hard problem harder type of situation that we had to deal with the pandemic. Yep. Tom, you were about to jump in with something as well. Yeah, the pandemic definitely made things trickier. Uh, I think, you know, this is kind of a mixture of 
stuff we sat down and explicitly talked about, you know, like the, the four of us, let's make a list of values, let's debate them. And, and this is again, where intuition is nice because we've seen values, you know, where you build a set of values and then you add 500 people to the org and then, hmm, let's look at those values again. Do they still sound as good? Are people still interpreting them correctly? And so we were able to bring a little bit of that to bear on, on our values. But yeah, we were very intentional about setting that up. And I expect that we'll revisit them continually as, as we grow. Things change quickly as companies grow. And you, you want to be ahead of changes because it's easiest to fix stuff before you add a bunch of people. <laughs> you know, we want to be on top of stuff and trying to debug these things as they go. So we were intentional about that. Some things we were less intentional about. Sometimes Viraj Rao just make a decision and go with it typically about less broadly scoped things. And we just kind of trust each other that, that that's the right call. And if we disagree, we, we will absolutely speak up with each other. So it's a mix because, I mean, you make a million decisions when you're starting a company like this. There's decisions up and down the stack, just spanning hu huge layers of abstraction. And you can't have explicit agreement about everything. There has to be a lot of trust. And that's one reason why I was so happy to do a startup with Farage because I've known him for a long time complete trust. And that just makes everything work better. The one thing that may be worth sort of extracting from your question, Patrick, is this doesn't start when you sit down to write down your values. That is just a memorialization thing. This starts when you're having those conversations with your potential co-founders, right? A lot of what we have written down as a value started when we met for the first and second time as a group and had all these discussions about, hey, what do you see happening here? How will we do this? How will we do that? You know, how do you think about this thing? How do you think about that thing? Tom and I had the advantage of generally knowing where our heads are at, but Francis and Linda were new to us and we were new to them. And I almost feel like our values fell out of those conversations where the only reason all four of us are doing this thing together is because we build that trust and understanding during those conversations. So if you're trying to do this after you've picked your co-founders, you're probably doing it too late. Part of uh, founder dating or whatever it's called nowadays is getting to the core of what makes you work as a team. And that needs to happen before you write it down. Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. Speaking of, the, of that moment... Because I think what's so special is uh, now we're, we're sort of reaching the part of the story where we're reaching the, the convergence, right? Where there's the decision that's been made where we are co-founding this company together. And both of you talked about trust being a, a big part of that, both in the conversations with everybody else on the co-founding team, but also that being established prior with both of you. So I'd love to dive into the decision that you made together to be like, let's start this thing together. But before that, how did you arrive here first? So how did you maintain your relationship together throughout these different inflection points of your career and then now make the decision, we want to start this company together? Yeah, so the history here is that Tom stayed at Dropbox until we started Common Room, but I took a two and a half 
your detour, joining Convoy. Incidentally, Tom and I had never really worked together too much while we were at Dropbox. We were, I think Carousel may have been about the closest we worked together. Yeah, I think so. They were, we were generally in pretty distinct parts of the company. But obviously, socially, we're friends, so we kept in touch. And it's kind of nice to have somebody you know in another part of the organization because they can be a good bouncing board to, like, get a read on what is going on and how things are going. Anyway, so I was at Convoy, did the end leadership thing there for the first year and a half, grew out the team, rinse and repeat, but new mistakes and much faster and optimized this time around. And then the last year I spent with the CEO of Convoy as his chief of staff, mostly doing everything except for engineering things. And really that reignited the entrepreneurial spirit in me. It was always there, but this sort of brought it to the fore. And then Tom and I had gone skiing early 2020 before everything locked down. And that was when we started throwing around some startup ideas and generally arrived at like, things we care about if we had to do another startup. You know, it's nice to have a two-hour drive where you're forced to have these conversations because otherwise you're just listening to boring radio. So we generally arrived at a few things we cared about if we had to do another company together, what it would be, but more importantly, what it would not be. You know, it's like music, nah, photos, (laughs) never, travel, never, consumer software, probably not. So we knew what we didn't want to do. And then we spent a month or so bouncing around one idea that we were pretty excited about, but then the pandemic happened and we sort of just like instinctively we parked it and went back to our lives because you remember the first month where everybody just went into a shell and even the idea of doing a startup then sounded insane. But then along the way, I got introduced to Linda. We started talking and a lot of what Common Room is trying to solve lined up with the conversations that Tom and I had had around what we would or would not do. And so I was like, hey, look, yeah, if we're doing this, I want to make sure Tom and I work together because working with good people was pretty high up on the list of what we want to do next. But yeah, that was kind of the TLDR. I don't know if there's anything I missed there, Tom. No, I think that's a good background. We had an idea, but the pandemic kind of torpedoed that. But when Linda came along and pitched us on this, it just seemed like it really hit everything I was looking for. The number one point there just being the team. If you do a startup, you're going to spend a lot of time with the people on the team, like a lot. I mean, it is, it's not getting married, but it is, you know, really important that you are happy with everybody there. And it just really clicked with Linda and Francis and going into this with Virage is is just amazing given his, his experience and his background. But it also hit a lot of other points on my kind of test for, do I want to do another startup? It's so hard to evaluate startups. I mean, venture capitalists are not all successful. And even though they have the opportunity of being able to invest in multiple startups, engineers have the the downside that they can only invest in one startup at a time and they don't do it professionally. So it's hard to pick the right startup. But I I tried to come up with like a, a couple points that as I was thinking through this, what should I be looking for just to systemize it a little bit? And Common Room just really seemed to check all the boxes. Number one, just being the team. Is it people that are just going to bring a ton to the table. And I was just super impressed with Linda and Francis and all my interactions with them. But it also seemed like it would have a market size that was big enough where it just would make it worth my while to to spend time on it. It it wasn't really a niche thing. And I I could imagine it being a a large business. 
I could also see how we could actually get people to use the product. One of the problems we had with Audio Galaxy version two was, you know, it was a great product. It worked very well technically, but we just couldn't get enough people to use it. That's just the ultimate tragedy for me is to build something and they don't come. So having a good insertion point where we actually think we have a pretty credible path to getting people to use it was great. Also, I'm just, I was just not going to do consumer software again. I was just done with that. It's too much of a lottery ticket. The, the payoffs can be huge, but it's m much better to be on the side of things where you you have a much deeper relationship with your customers. So the last thing I was looking at was, you know, is this technically viable in a way that I really can contribute to it? Is it something where, you know, we need like a computer graphics specialist or something like that, or like a deep learning person, or, you know, just things that I don't have. I, I wouldn't want to found a startup where, okay, we'll get the startup. And then once we hire this person, we'll be successful. I wanted to, to be the person that could make the startup successful. And so Common Room just really seemed to check all those boxes. But really, it was just getting a chance to work with Barrage again. That, that would have gotten me out to a lot of startups, I think. What a great framework, because I think you're right. Most people don't get as many, quote unquote, shots on goal when they're the one choosing to participate in the startup as an employee versus being able to invest in it. And just by the law of probability, that's a much harder space to be in. Yeah, absolutely. One more topic I wanted to, to get into because you know, being in the spirit of nostalgia and, and reflecting on both of your experiences and the, the different parallel tracks that you've been on to arrive at this moment. You know, when you're looking back at all these experiences and now here you are entering into this new company, what are some of those lessons that you're applying now or some of the things that you've made a very powerful conscious choice to do differently? I guess I'll start. I think we spoke a lot about velocity, so I'll skip over that. There's a lot of things we're doing that are optimized for building something from zero to one quickly and making sure you sort of leapfrog potential competitors. But organizationally, this decisiveness thing I mentioned, empowering the team to be that. So making sure that, you know, the team really understands problems they're solving and have autonomy and independence on identifying the right solutions instead of a very top-down approach of this is the problem and this is how you will solve it. No, it's you know, do you understand the problem? Yes. If you don't, I will spend a lot of energy making sure you understand the problem. Once you do, part of trusting your team is trusting them to arrive at the right conclusions, but also knowing that when they do have uh, questions, they will bring it up to you without hesitancy. So a lot of where we spend our time is, you know, making sure that people are autonomous and self-sufficient, but also when they need help, we set the right kind of environment that they can ask help without feeling like they're judged or without hesitating. Because the last thing I want is somebody banging the head on a keyboard when, you know, Tom or I could have answered the question in two minutes. Like, that doesn't help anybody. There are legit times when you do need to bang your head on a keyboard. When those don't need to happen, let's not make them happen. Yeah, that's something I've seen over and over in my career that engineers come on a team is some people have a hard time with the right intuition about when to ask questions. And... One big component of velocity is just how quickly you can get new people up to speed. And some of the best people I've worked with, when they don't know something, they will find the person that knows and ask them the right questions until they know as much as that person. And then basically keep asking questions until the person says, I don't know, I don't know. And then they remember it all and, and they move on. Other people will take the, it's all just code a little bit too far and spend three days digging into something that someone could have answered in, in minutes. And so I think we've come up with an idea that I like and it seems to be working pretty well to, to deal with this problem, which is, you know, we're a remote company. We spend a lot of time in Slack, but we have a, a special uh, emoji you put in to ask a question that indicates, hey, 
I'm still working on this problem. Like I'm not a slacker. I'm not giving up. I'm not dumb. I'm still working on it. But in case somebody else knows and they're looking at Slack and they can save me some time, just let me know. And it, it sort of gives people the freedom to ask a question they might have otherwise spent 10 minutes poking into. People seem pretty happy with that. And I still don't think this problem is one we've completely solved, but we're very conscious of stuff like that, which I would have just been completely, I wouldn't have noticed that kind of problem 10 or 15 years ago. But now we actually recognize it and we can be deliberate about saying, yeah, this is something we care about enough to work on. So let, let's build a system for this. And then the derivative of working this way is that the types of people who will thrive in an environment like this are probably more experienced engineers versus your typical new grad or relatively junior engineer. At some point, we're going to have to expand to make sure that they can be as successful as the more senior engineers. But for now, this is another one of those short-term trade-offs where we would rather have mature senior or like mature experienced engineers on the team just because imposter syndrome is a real thing. I've suffered it. Tom suffered it, I suspect. Patrick, Jerry, y'all have had to deal with it too. And moving incredibly quickly means not falling into some of the traps that experience is the only teacher for. So again, this is an opinionated choice that we're making that we're going to have to revisit sometime soon because, you know, I was a kid and people helped me out and I want to make sure I do that for other engineers. But for now, the way we've set things up, it would be extremely hard for someone relatively inexperienced to come in and hit the ground running. So that's another one of those choices that is conscious. You know, the other thing that is probably broader than just common room is understanding the dynamic of how someone like a Tom works with someone like me. There is no scenario where one of us is successful without really understanding and empathizing with the other person's role. There's memes out there about, you know, pointy-haired bosses and just like mean jerk principal engineers. Like, that stuff is real only because there isn't enough understanding and empathy for the challenges that the other faces. And I feel like as engineering leaders, if you're blind to challenges that the engineering team has, you're going to fail. And as a principal engineer, staff engineer, if you do not understand the challenges of managing people, you will fail. But if you can figure that out, this is like a pretty strong symbiotic relationship. And I think that's what I enjoy a lot about working with Tom. I know we're reaching our time and I, I wanted to to ask one more question related to that last point, Viraj, for both of you, what's so special about this conversation between the two of you is that we have 15 years of history and we're examining both two different engineering and engineering leadership career tracks in parallel, which is now manifesting into a new co-founding relationship. And we get to both examine the early factors that impacted your career decisions and also the executive level choices that you all are choosing to make to define your new business. So to see both of those things in parallel is a very special and really, really amazing experience. But with that, it's apparent that both of you have a ton of admiration and respect for each other. And so I was just wondering to close, when you thought about the opportunity to work with each other, what were the things that you admire most about each other? You go first, Tom. Huh. <laughs> I think Faraj and I compliment each other very well. I was thinking a few weeks ago about how to compare Faraj and I, and we've been skiing together a fair number of times. And this sort of, to make some kind of analogy or maybe a quip close to the point I want to make is, you know, if you go skiing with me, you're, you're not going to have a lot of fun, but you're not going to get hurt. 
If, if you go skiing with Farage, you will not be bored. You are going to be doing slopes you are not comfortable with, and it's going to be an intense, memorable day. So I, I love working with Farage because he is a great counterbalance to my caution. You know, like I, I see all the problems. I know everything's going to go wrong. My wife refers to me as the health and safety officer of the house because I, I know what temperature you have to cook everything to and all that stuff. But, you know, Farage likes to... To, to push and to go. And so it sort of pulls me along, which I think we end up in a great place. And hopefully I can contribute some amount of safety to the to the trip as well. But it's more fun with Farage. If you want to go skiing, have a great time and not get hurt, you bring us both along. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's actually a really good analogy. I did not think of that before. That's pretty good. Basically mirroring that, it's really good to know that as you're pushing forward, the role of a engineering leader or any re leader is really to push the team forward right you don't lead by stepping back and asking people to march like you lead the charge and like inspire others to follow but then you know that somebody's got your back which is important and i really like that about tom where you know it's like look i may be trying to run 100 miles an hour here but like if i'm gonna step into a pile of poop like i'm pretty sure somebody from the back's gonna yell and their voice is gonna be tom's which is good right I guess I got a less eloquent analogy there. <laughs> <laughs> Tom and Raj, what an incredible conversation and just what a special moment to reflect on and think about all of the experiences and stories that you've two shared together and all of the things that have brought you here today. So just a big thank you for all of this. This was a ton of fun. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having us on. This was great. If you want to keep up with Tom and Raj, check them out on LinkedIn. Tom is also a fellow podcaster and co-host of The Downtime Project a podcast that helps engineers learn from the internet's most notable outages. You can find the links to their profiles and the downtime project in our show notes. Here's a quick recap of our takeaways from part two of our conversation with Tom and Viraj. So what led Tom and Viraj to pursue their different career paths? Tom followed the path to become a principal IC because after experiencing a few roles in engineering management, he identified that one of his main sources of satisfaction was finishing projects. He resonated more with the decisions, choices, and solving the ambiguous problems, oftentimes more aligned with what staff engineers encounter, and so he chose to follow that path. Viraj first became a manager out of necessity for the company, and he had experienced enough bad ones to know their impact. He resonated with the concept of leverage and being a force multiplier. He identified he could find satisfaction in measuring his impact through the impact of his teams and organizations, knowing that if he could hire 10 people to code equal or better than him, no engineering feat he could possibly perform on his own would have that same level of impact. If you pursue the path of joining an early stage company, it's really hard to pick the right startup. Here's Tom's four-point framework to assess different startup opportunities. The first is the team. Can you learn from them, and do they complement your strengths? The second is the insertion point. Is there a credible path to get people to use the product that you're building? The third is the market size. Is it niche and small, or is it big enough to build a large business around? And the fourth is, is it technically viable for you? Is this something that as an engineer or engineering leader that you can make an immediate meaningful contribution to? And here are some of the lessons that they've learned and strong opinions they've developed about early company building and shaping the values, culture, and execution of a new engineering organization and what they're applying to their new company common room. Find co-founders and team members that complement your strengths to cover each other's blind spots. Conversations to define your engineering culture's values happen in the earliest discovery conversation with your potential co-founders. Seek to understand their thought process, their different mental models, and get to the core of what makes them work as a team. 
those conversations will give you signal to the values that are shaping the foundation of your organization. For execution, to optimize your organization for velocity, it's essential to build the muscle, habits, and culture around recovering quickly so that when your team makes mistakes, you're able to continue to move forward fast. And how you execute as an engineering organization changes at each different phase of your company. How you operate with five people is very different from 50, is very different from 200. Expect to reinvent how you execute at different scales. But... Make sure what you're optimizing for is preserved in each of those evolutions and that the processes connect back to your values as an engineering organization. Be decisive and empower the team to understand the problems they're solving and give them autonomy and independence to identify the right solutions. Give trust and create an environment where your team can come to you to ask for help freely without being judged. They're also making a conscious choice and trade-off deciding their current work environment may be best suited to more experienced engineers in the short term, and they know they'll have to pivot and re-optimize and expand their hiring focus later on, but it's a conscious trade-off they're making. And no surprise here, but they're also consciously focused on creating a symbiotic relationship between engineering leaders and principal or staff engineers, because they know that if they share empathy for each other's challenges, they're much stronger together. And all of this is epitomized in the mutual respect and admiration they share for each other. Viraj pushing forward and faster, and Tom is the counterbalance, spotlighting problems and calling out the challenges ahead. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with a fellow engineering leader. Also, we'd love to hear from you. Send us a message with your thoughts, feedback, and any ideas you might have for the show. Or leave us a review on whichever podcast platform you're tuning in from. If you love the show, We also have a ton of other ways to stay involved with the engineering leadership community. We also launched the ELC peer group program. Peer groups provide a safe space to uncover solutions to your challenges from a thoughtfully curated group of your peers. It's not too late to join. ELC peer groups are ongoing and you can jump in at any time, but the sooner you join the program, the sooner you'll be able to connect with other leaders who can help you solve your real challenges. To stay up to date and learn more about all of our upcoming events, our peer groups, and other programs that are going on, head to sfelc.com. That's sfelc.com. Or follow the link in the description. See you next time on the Engineering Leadership Podcast.